welcome. It's the TetraCast. I'm Brian Vitale, and joining me today are James Galizio. Hey. And Adam Vitale. Hey, guys. Hey, pretty road opening. Uh, looks like a pretty standard episode in terms of what we have to cover today. So uh, two weeks ago, we had a deluge of information from all sorts of places about upcoming RPGs and games and consoles and everything. And then last week was a quiet week. There's not a whole lot going on. This week, naturally, falls somewhere kind of in the center. We've got some small details from the state of play uh, from Wednesday or Thursday, whenever that was. Uh, we have some sales milestones that will just be quick to rattle off and we'll discuss which ones we think are most interesting there. We've got kind of a good handful of like previews and interviews up on the site that I want to do uh, shout outs for. And we've also got a, a couple games that have been like uh, released or updated in early August or soon to be in terms of a big expansion or a big release coming out for a uh, Final Fantasy 14 on Tuesday. So uh, I guess we'll just be talking about what we've been starting off August with in terms of what games we've been playing. Uh, I guess I could just do eeny, meeny, miny, mo between you two or whoever talks first gets to go first. Uh, it's not an RPG, but... Um... I played this demo for an upcoming game that was on the Japanese PlayStation Network. And it wasn't a very long demo. I guess it was a decent size, but um, Mad Rat Dead, which is this rhythm platformer that NIS is uh, publishing, um, actually it's called worldwide. Mad Rat Dead? Yeah. Okay. It's um, directed by the same person that did the Yomawari games, which is interesting. The art style's got a really unique look to it. Since it's a rhythm platformer, thankfully, the music is very good. It's very frenetic and whatnot. And I was interested in it after seeing like the Japanese trailer. The North American trailer for it that they showed off at New Game Plus Expo, I think, was pretty bad, I'll be honest. But the Japanese trailer is really, really like oozing with style. So like ever since I saw that, I was like, you know what? I like rhythm games. I like platformers. I like to give it a shot. So uh Japanese mutual of mine on Twitter, like uh, about a week and a half ago, was tweeting about a demo version that I had no idea was up on PlayStation Network. So I downloaded it like a few days ago, tried it out. It's very interesting. Um, so like there is like easy and hard mode for each stage, kind of like in regular rhythm games. But the only difference it does is that so it's kind of like Crypt of the Necrodancer, where you move based off of actions according to a tempo that's like constantly moving down with a bar at the bottom of the screen and easy mode. It's just based off of the BPM. So it's a constant string of like just uh, a constant rhythm, like no variation. It's just the speed is based off the song and uh, the hard mode actually ties some of the inputs to the actual flow of the song, not just the BPM. So that's a, uh, doesn't sound like it would work very well, but I feel like it actually does because like, obviously the game is very much designed around that. Um, so you have stuff like standard, like jumps, you have stuff like uh, kind of like midair dashes and drop downs and stuff like that. And it's really interesting how it smartly takes advantage of the uh, rhythm game aspect of it for the platforming. Cause it's like, you have to not only do you have to keep track of the rhythm, but you have to keep track of what's going on and like kind of time it. And it's really, really neat. Yeah, I've been watching. Did. I'm actually, while you started talking about it, I started just pulling up a YouTube playlist of some gameplay. And I don't know if I, so it, like you said, it's a rhythm platformer. Uh, 
I guess I wasn't expecting this art style. Like, it's very unique. It's almost like a Western Saturday morning cartoon, only maybe more colorful. I don't know. It's like, I, don't, I can't think of another game that's a, this game, Mad Rat Dead, looks like this other game. Like, I was trying to find a point of comparison to say, like, this is what it looks like. But I can't really come up with one. It's very unique looking. But yeah, um, not too much to say. It's pretty hard, but I don't think that's necessarily a problem. Um, but um, I enjoyed the demo. I'm definitely excited for the rest of the game. It's always like that's one of the things about NIS. Um, like both NIS and Idea Factory tend to make a bunch of like new IPs all the time. But whereas like a company like Idea Factory, they make a bunch of new IPs, and for the most part, the games still play the same. Like um, one thing that both Chow and I kind of agreed on about a Death End Request is that it should have been a visual novel because like the actual story aspects of it and the um, the aesthetic was really nice, but the actual gameplay, when, once you got to the RPG aspect of it, it just didn't feel very good. <laughs> but with NIS, for better or worse, like when they make new IPs, they make new IPs and like the gameplay is completely different. And sometimes you'll have like misses like the princess guy, but then you'll have other games like Labyrinth of Refrain or Yomawari or the or like just most recently we did um Void Terrarium on Classic. Yeah, I was I was gonna bring that up. Like that that falls right into that window of we're trying something new here with a couple borrowed ideas, but we're gonna put our own twist on it. But yeah, so, so something like Mad Rat Dead, it's just like definitely um gives like it it just playing it gives me a bit more respect for like the work that NIS puts into like actually trying to diversify their library. It's not an RPG. I don't think there's anything specifically about it that would appeal to RPG fans generally. But I figured it was just worth mentioning because I did play it and I do feel like it's something unique. Again, like the most recent, I guess the most uh, close comparison would be Necrodancer, but Necrodancer is yeah. a roguelike and not, an, and not a rhythm platformer. But yeah, um, besides that, I've just been playing a bunch of games as a service titles. Like I've been catching up on Final Fantasy fourteen and prep for 5.3 releasing Tuesday, which um, obviously, uh, but the main game I've been playing besides like dailies for PSO2 was um, not even necessarily for the most recent update for Monster Hunter. But uh, if you've been following my uh, little escapades on the uh, Discord, I uh, most recently decided to kind of close out my PS4 save and get the Platinum Trophy, which requires a ton of grinding and a ton of trying to get these things called crowns for monsters, which um, I've done it. I would not recommend anyone else do it unless you're maybe on PC and you have the mod installed that lets you know if a monster is a crown as soon as it spawns in. Oh, don't tell you- me that there's a mod for this because now I'm going to be looking for it. There is. It's the same mod that lets you know, like, the monster's, like, health and, uh, like, your team's, like, DPS and stuff like that. It's, oh. like, a general mod. And one of the widgets that's part of it lets you know if a monster is a crown as soon as it spawns in, which is pretty nice. Because but, if um, you look at my um, Steam, like, achievements for Monster Hunter World, I am, I am missing six. What they are are large. Quest. No, no, they're large and small crowns. And then the then the the first quote unquote platinum like the first you did everything, and then the iceborne large and small crowns, and then the, you did everything. That's literally all I'm missing are crowns. You did the treasures in iceborne. Yeah, I did. I did the treasures. I even like kept up with like the photographs and things like that. But like crowns, like 
The photographs isn't that hard though, because you don't need to do everything. So it's especially since they've added in new ones over time, it's not that hard. But the treasures, like fun facts, uh, when I played through uh, Iceborne for review and put like 300 hours into it before uh, before launch, I didn't even find any treasures because it was locked behind like uh, levels with um, the um, Vermalkin tribes. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, if you're playing mostly multiplayer, you have like no reason to level those up and you're not leveling those up. And it's kind of annoying that you have to get the tribes to level 10 before you can do their treasure requests. It's, yeah. yeah so I've been like really completionist. So I guess I'm going to say, did you have more other games that you had played or just kind of dipping in and out of those service games like Monster Hunter uh, and Fantasy Star? Uh, just in and out of those. Um, I will say that I did fight Frostfang Berioth, but not really much to say there. It's like, it's a Berioth, but it it's a bit slower, hits harder. For some people, they say it's easier. I can see why, because it doesn't hop around as much. But uh... So I have a really silly uh, something to admit here. I thought it was Frostfang Baroth. Like, I thought it was going to be like that classic monster, only like breathing breathing ice, and not just a stronger version of an already icy monster. Like, oh, it's Baroth. Uh, no, no. I mean, if it was an ice Baroth, it would have been Jade Baroth, which is an al- like it's an already existing subspecies. Oh, I didn't know that. So uh, one of the, if for anyone listening, one of the dynamics here is that obviously James and I have both played a lot of Monster Hunter World, but he's like a series vet and I'm kind of like, this is the first one I've played, but I've really gotten into it. And I'm just kind of segueing now into what I've been playing this week because a lot of it rhymes with what you said. I've kind of been dipping in and out of a bunch of like service style games, including some MMOs. Uh, so Fantasy Star's new episode released. I really haven't done any of the story content, but I've dipped my toes into like the crafting. And obviously it, it released on Steam alongside. We talked about this on the podcast last week. And um, this sounds like a very silly thing, but the Steam release, I don't know why they held it back for this, but it finally has like the same proper UI scaling options that the Xbox release has. So you can play it in 4K on PC now with like legible text that's actually not microscopic. So I don't know why that was not in the MS Store release, or even if it still is missing from that, because now you could play it through either like backend if you wanted. Yeah. But I don't know why you'd want to play the MS release at this point. Again, I kind of said this when this game was first like released on PC, but if you're if you're in the camp that said that thinks that a PC store front end is literally interchangeable and doesn't affect the game at all, and you know, the store doesn't matter. Play Fantasy Star between the Steam release and the and the and the store release and then come back to me. Because yeah, you don't even need to install the tweaker now if you don't want to, because the Steam release just works. So. Right. So so I've been using this third party I don't know. Basically like a third party launcher called PSO2 Tweaker. And I would basically say that this was essential if you were playing the MS store release. Okay. Uh but on the Steam release it's kinda like a, it's maybe a nice to have, but even then, it's it's not necessary anymore. I've um, I've also been uh, in late July. Guild Wars Two had a episode release, so I've been playing through that. Uh, I dipped my toes into Monster Hunter because of Frostfang Barioth and a couple event quests that I wanted to do. Then, outside of those games as a service type stuff or MMO type stuff, uh, I've been playing Horizon Zero Dawn for PC, which released on Steam yesterday or late Thursday. Um, so. I put up a preview on Wednesday about my time with the PC release. And I actually 
had a pretty okay time with it with a few caveats that I called out. But then, of course, the next day, Digital Foundry comes out and basically was a hell of a lot more negative on it. So I almost kind of felt like, well, if you're if you're not in agreement with Digital Foundry, then you're you're in the wrong. Uh, but I have seen a couple more like firsthand impressions from people who have played who have downloaded the game on Steam or or, or DGS and played it that have been more in line with what my experience was, which was it plays fine with a few caveats. So I'm feeling a little bit better about my mostly positive impressions now. Um, if you're planning on playing this game on PC. First of all, I really hope you have a G-Sync monitor or, or, or the AMD equivalent because it does not hold a steady frame rate very well, even if you tell it to like specify, like it has an adaptive resolution setting where you can say, I want this game to play at 60 or 90 or 30. And it's supposed to try to hold it there and then adjust the rendering scale to, to what it needs to be, kind of like dynamic resolution on a console game, but it doesn't work very well. Uh, and you can go through my preview about all the specifics about the settings and technical details and things like that. Uh, but as for the game itself, I kind of was underwhelmed by the first, I don't know, three or four hours of the game. I thought the premise was really kind of silly or hackneyed. So the premise of the game is that Alloy and her adoptive father, Rost, are basically outcasts from their tribe. And this is in like... This I haven't finished the game, so this is my understanding of the premise without revelation. It's impossible for me to spoil because I don't know what's going. I don't know where it's leading, but it's like a, a future uh, a future state post apocalyptic Earth that's been like retaken by nature, and you can find data logs and old texts of the old world, like the Metal Age or whatever you want to call it. And it, the game is not is pretty coy about why they are outcasts. It doesn't fully explain it. But of course, there's a very useful thing where it's like, well, uh, when we have the proving, which is like kind of like a, a Hunger Games sort of uh, competition every year, whoever wins it can ask a question of the elders. And there's your opportunity to learn everything you need to know. It's like, well, that's convenient. And then the game goes through this like training montage where the main protagonist, Aloy, basically is preparing for this for this competition. And I just thought it was just like very like cliche not interesting i just wasn't jiving with the whole premise um and then throw in throw in a bunch of slow walking segments and like colored ledge gameplay where you climb up on a ledge and you just hold the stick in whatever direction the next colored ledge is and keep pressing jump i i i, I hate that sort of gameplay it's almost like anti-gameplay there's no thought behind it there's no there's no meaning behind it. I don't know if anyone feels as strongly about those as I do, but I hated them in Uncharted. I don't like them here. Luckily, when you get into the open world, it's less prevalent. But I think the game kind of threw a bunch in in like the starting more 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 uh, straightforward segments. So I guess I just had to kind of like grin and bear it for a bit. I will say that I kind of agree that Horizon has a bit of a weak beginning. But once you get into the thick of it, I feel like it really does a better job of uh, holding your attention. It gets a lot more interesting. Um, like at first glance, I feel like it's a bit of a standard like uh, Assassin's Creed style open world. You have like your towers and all that and like all those little uh, blips on your map and stuff. But um, the more you play it, the more you see that the game does like take some creative liberties here and there. And it feels really good once you get into the thick of it. Like for example, like 
everyone knows the meme about like the towers that you climb to open up parts of the map and like Assassin's Creed, but and here those towers are actual living creatures that move around. And yeah, some of them that's a f- small, like small, like kind of platforming puzzles to figure out how to get onto them, which is like a small change, but it really does make it feel a lot more unique. Yeah, and once the, once the game kind of shut up and just said like go have fun like here's your playground go do something i just kind of enjoyed it appropriately like, okay because i wasn't really feeling strong about the story it's it's fine i guess i don't feel too negatively about it but i'm also like not itching to see the next thing but i'm curious i'm curious have you met silence yet i don't think so yeah so you're you still have quite a bit of story left to go i mean i don't think the story is really the big selling point either but there's still a lot you haven't seen so i'm in the desert area right now so i'm on my way to meridian so i put like 20 hours in the game but i've also been like very particular about being kind of uh completionist almost and i really enjoy the pace of combat it's very different from other games and a lot of other games you kind of have your best gear that you then equip and then you do as much damage as possible to the enemies like in their weak points and their critical point or whatever. And I'm speaking super generally here, but then horizon in most encounters tends to slow it down or says here is a sawtooth or whatever, or here is a bellow back or whatever they're called. Like it has this weakness here where it's gullet is weak to pierce or whatever, but then it also has this weakness here where it's back is weak to fire. Or It has very specific, like, okay, you can disable it in these ways. You can make the fight easier on yourself if you are particular about which weapons you're using, which traps you set up ahead of time, even like which direction you approach the enemy from. So it has this very like, I want to say plotting, but plotting has kind of like a negative connotation. But here I'm trying to use it positively. It has this very deliberate, maybe that's a better word, deliberate sense of do you know, like you don't just go up to a monster and say time to do as much damage as possible as quick as I can. You have to know, like, okay, what do I want to do first? Like, what, what weapon do I need to equip to do that? And then what do I have to do second once that's done? And if he does this, where do I go next? Like, it's very, it's cerebral. <laughs> I don't like that word, but it's... I think I think the combat is the strongest aspect of the game, um, or at least the most unique and most distinctive, because no other game really plays like this, really, both what you said, but also just it really goes into that whole like hunter trap trapper yeah. sort of uh motif or theme in terms I've, of how you approach the uh defeating all these various sorts of creatures i will say that i feel like it ties pretty well into why the game does have like a crossover with monster hunter on ps4 because it makes sense because the gameplay loop of like trying to disable certain parts of the robot dino's uh bodies to make the fight a bit easier kind of feels very similar to like attacking specific body parts for monsters in monster hunter like the yeah. top off of or something i was i didn't actually think of it like that but when i when i was fighting frosting berry off one of the first things i would go for was that tail because it has like a lot of reach on it and if you can get rid of that you do, like so in a monster hunter fight my strategy is typically to do like the wall bounce the wall hit some people call it bonking some people call it eating depending on your age i guess um and the fr- the first few times you kind of get the monster like on its side and you're able to just do a bunch of damage, I would always go for his tail to try to just basically in a defensive idea. Like once he doesn't have that, the rest of the fight should be easier. Yeah. Now, I do wonder if now that Horizon's on PC, 
there's no reason for those crossover like Palico armor or whatever to be PS4 exclusive. But at the same time, I guess so is the Street Fighter stuff, and that's also on PC. Yeah, the Street Fighter stuff is on PC. Like those oh. events. Oh, but just... some of the some of the gear you get for it, or some of the rewards are different. Like you can't get the um, like the Ryu armor or the Ryu costume. Really? I thought you could. I thought it was specifically you needed to have like Street Fighter Five like installed or something. Oh, uh, maybe that's. Yeah, I don't have it installed, but okay. Well, I was wondering if maybe the the I'm not really itching to get the Horizon costume or whatever, but just curious, wondering. Um, well, I mean, one thing, if you really want to grind out those crowns, like one of the event quests for the Street Fighter stuff is a huge, huge bear off. So, oh, um, one thing that I will say back to the PC specific aspect is that I was going into this game planning on using a controller. So I don't really have a singular preference for controller or mouse and keyboard. It just kind of depends on the game and how I'm feeling. Like I play Monster Hunter with a controller. I play Fantasy Star with a keyboard. It just that's just what I kind of landed on. So I was planning on playing Horizon Zero Dawn with a controller. So my because I was just like, oh, it's a console third person game. I that this seems like it would work just fine. Um, side note, it does have both support for Xbox prompts and DualShock prompts. And you can kind of re you can remap the controllers independently, so you can even have like your Xbox controller and your PlayStation controller have different inputs, which I thought was really kind of neat and cool. Uh, yeah, that's then, yeah. Um, and then what? But what I learned was is that maybe it's due to the amount of first not first person just aiming you have to do with your bow. But I found like okay, this is a bit easier on the mouse, and if you're really being cheeky, you can still have aim assist on while using a mouse. So it makes it like pretty, pretty, pretty straightforward to get those headshots or whatever. But I just found that I the keyboard controls of the game ended up feeling really natural to me. So I ended up switching and playing a third person game with keyboard, which I don't do that often. Um, even though I guess I just said I did it with Fantasy Star, but that's one of the strengths of the port is that. It has you can it has Xbox prompts, it has DualShock prompts, uh, obviously keyboard prompts as well. It switches to any input that you want, like whatever input you most recently have a button press on, it'll switch to. So, and you can obviously remap all three of them. So, I think that's one of the best attention. To, out of all the things that the port might come up short on, I think that's something that they should be uh, applauded for. But yeah, I'm eager to put more time into it. But like I said, I've been kind of also putting time into games like Guild Wars and Fantasy Star and Monster Hunter. Um, so maybe maybe this time next week I'll have a uh, playthrough and seen some of the stuff that Adam says is uh, a little bit more interesting uh, in the story section and fighting a bit more. I've just now getting into like where Sawtooths can show up pretty commonly and things like that. So I'm eager to see like how the monsters or the the robots getting get more intricate and uh, detailed and things like that. So that just leaves uh, Adam in terms of going into what he's been playing over the last uh, week. Yeah, so to be honest, I don't want to talk about this for too long, mainly because the games I've been playing are really not that interesting. But so in attempt, yeah, in attempt to kind of round off my outstanding Game Boy Advance library in terms of games that I haven't played yet, I've played most of the GBA games that I kind of plan on playing, like, ever. <laughs> um, but there are a few outstanding games that I wanted to get to, and, and some of those were uh, Summon Knight Swords... Crap, sorry. Summon Knight Swordcraft <laughs> Stories 1 and 2. And 
these games are so summonite is a strategy rpg series in japan and actually most of the games have not been localized they released on like the playstation and playstation 2 um mostly it wasn't until the fifth one on playstation portable that it was actually localized by gaijin works of of all people but summonite swordcraft story is a spin-off of that series and those released on Game Boy Advance, kind of in the middle of the of the aughts. And I just decided, you know what? I have some free time. These games are not too long. I, I'll go ahead and just uh, give these a run through now. So these are action RPG sort of side-scroller kind of games. Uh, how they generally look is if you've played like Tales of Fantasia or Tales of Destiny, it's got that sort of side-scroller chibi model characters type of gameplay only you only have one character that you control which is your playable unit um these games are basically set in a world where um generally how it works is you have you have like a human world and then there's four different like creature worlds that kind of exist in parallel planes and then the humans can summon creatures from those worlds to the human world to kind of act as like a partner, if you will. That's why it's called Summon Knight. It's kind of a, a major focus of these games, both the mainline and the spin-offs. And I guess what I'll say is for these two games is in a nutshell, if you were maybe like 10 or 12 years old when these released, they were probably pretty good. And I mean that in like the most positive way possible. I feel like the games are competent, decent RPGs, action RPGs. But they are just kind of basic overall. Like they're, they, the storylines aren't incredibly interesting. The combat is just kind of bland and basic. Not that it's bad. It's just kind of there. And if you, if you played this when you were really young and just uh, like kind of these simple games with simple stories um, and simple gameplay, they're okay. But it's just, just they don't really stand out in that. I think that's why you may, may have not even heard of them. Two, I two questions. Go ahead. One, are you pl- what are you playing this on? Are you playing on like a DSi or uh, DS Lite? Oh, right, because I forget. I always forget when like what what revision of the DS was it where the where the Game Boy Advance part was taken out. Um, the then, reason why I play them on a DS Lite is because I have one of the old GBA SPs that doesn't have the backlight. Like Uh-oh. the GBA, SP, the, the original GBA SP, which is already the revision of the GBA on like the clamshell design, that first version of it didn't have a backlight. It had like this really awkwardly, I don't even know what you call it, but it, it's it's hard to see if you're like playing this or if it's like if there's any sort of daylight because it just that kind of clouds the screen. So yeah. usually I'll play GBA games on a DS light instead because those have a nice backlight. What was your other question? Um, is this series like still ongoing? Uh, it was not too long ago. Um, Summon Night Six came out in 2017, I think. That was actually a PS4 game. Uh, oh, okay. Actually, was it a PS4 game? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. Okay. Um, and so Summon Night Six was actually kind of a weird game because it was a uh, it was localized, but it it's sort of a it's sort of a like a like a celebration sort of game for the series with all these cameos and callbacks to the earlier games. So it's like oh, this localized game has a bunch of 
has a bunch of cameos and references and callbacks and characters from older games that are, have not been released in English. So it was a little bit awkward. Um, but yeah, uh, Summon Night was actually kind of interesting about the release is it was localized by Atlas, Atlas USA, in like 2006. This was before, like way before the Sega acquisition, back when it was still Index. And this was back when Atlas USA would localize kind of these more, you know, these Japanese games from other developers. Like Demon's um, Right. Yeah, that was a few years later in like 2009. Um, now they don't really have the they don't really have the bandwidth to do that because they have to they take care of all of the Sega stuff now, and that the that keeps them busy. But back then they they did localize quite a handful of just various Japanese things. Um, what was kind of awkward is that in Japan, Summonite Swordcraft Story One released in 2003, and I believe Summonite Swordcraft Story Two released in 2006. But the Western releases, they must have decided to localize them both at the same time or like a similar similar project because they they released like two months apart, both in 2006 in the West. Were they at least in the right order or no? Yeah, they were. It was like, okay. yeah, but there's only like a two month, you know, window between the first and second game releasing in English in the West versus like three years in Japan. So it's just kind of a awkward localization thing back then. Uh, I will say that the second game is much better than the first, just in terms of its presentation. They're both Game Boy Advance games, but the first game kind of it's kind of ugly in terms of its sprite style and the sound. It sounds like an original Game Boy game. I, I am not an expert in like like sound chips or whatever you call it, like uh, how the sound is formatted on these on these on um, these games. But the I original. Summon Night Swordcraft story does not really sound like a GBA game. It sounds older than that. Whereas the second game, it kind of updated. The, the sprites look a lot better. It's more colorful. The localization is better. Um, and the sound is better. So it is just a much better presentation, if you will. Sounds like the kind of jump between um, when I was playing through the Castlevania Game Boy Advance games, where uh, Harmony of Dissonance also had that sound issue where I'm pretty sure it was actually just running off of the Game Boy Color sound chip. <laughs> so yeah. it's um, the reason why is because the GBA didn't actually have a, a sound chip of its own. It was all on the CPU. So some games, they kind of had to decide between using CPU resources for actual gameplay and using it for sound design. So... It makes sense then that for some developers, they might just default to using the Game Boy Color sound chip because then they can relegate the CPU to other things. It's one of those things where even if you don't know the details of the technical um, know-how, you, you, you know it when you know it, when you hear it. So Right, and I get the gist. Um, yeah, I mean, I... I wouldn't really recommend the games unless you're like me and just want to just like you want to make play like round off your GBA library. I don't think they're bad. They're just kind of bland in a way. So long story short, if you want to round out your GBA library, play the Castlevania games first. Yeah, I guess. Which was the one that you said you really liked? Was that one of the GBA ones? Uh, Aria Sara. Is that a GBA one? I get yeah. the I get them mixed up because I haven't played them. Maybe I should. Maybe that I, now that I played this, I should play the Castlevania GBA games. 
you can get them on you virtual console. So. Yeah. Well, that kind of covers it for what we've been doing this week in terms of games we've been playing. Uh, on the website, we actually have a fair number of like reviews and previews, and that's including the fact that we put up two last week in terms of, or uh, yeah, two last week in terms of Other Side and Hellpoint. Or I, I think I think Hellpoint might have been this week, but we also have a Fairy Tale RPG review. Uh, Chow did that for us up on the site. He thought it was good for fans of the show, but if you're not a fan, there's really no reason to play it. Um, so go ahead and give that a look if you're interested in that game. Uh, we have an interview from the developers of Crystal Chronicles Remastered, which is coming out soon. Uh, in that interview, we did ask, and Alex was the one, Alex Donaldson was the one that sent these questions over. Um, we did ask about like multiplayer information, about the decision to go online only and things like that. And they gave some answers, but they kind of avoided the question a bit. Uh, but we do have an interview about some of the, what, what like Crystal Chronicles was always this Nintendo kind of focused RPG set for Final Fantasy, like a spinoff, but now it's obviously coming to Sony systems on PlayStation. And just a little bit about the history of that sub genre, sub of Final Fantasy. Uh, we have two previews also for some indie games, uh, Windbound, which is that, kind of uh, evoking that uh, Wind Waker. Is it Wind Waker or is it Breath of the Wild? Or is it kind of both? I actually did the preview for Windbound. So just briefly here, it artistically looks like Breath of the Wild and it has sailing gameplay like Wind Waker. Uh, but what so it I wasn't going crazy. Is, yeah, but it's not, it doesn't really, it, it, it plays pretty differently from both. Like outside of the art and maybe the combat, it's a actually a survival game, and it has survival elements that no Zelda game has. So, uh, well, I guess Zelda might have very light survival in Breath of the Wild, but things like crafting—yeah, you craft every single weapon you make, you craft your boat, you craft these pots that you can put things in, you craft like a hammer to that allows you to craft other things, you craft a shovel which allows you to dig up clay, which allows you to craft other things. Um, and it's also a roguelike, which I actually did not know. And if you look at like some of the trailers for the game, it it's not very kind of like with other side initially. It's not it it, it wasn't very outward with the with a point that it's it is a roguelike. So how it generally works is you you kind of start crafting and kind of getting yourself up to speed with various weapons and utilities and things. And if you die, you have to start over, like come from the beginning. But it has a persistent element where certain inventory slots are persistent. So the idea is, is if you put like your shovel and your hammer and your axe in these persistent inventory slots, and then you, let's just say you falter and have to start over, you already got like a big leg up on where on where, on where you initially started from because you, these things took time to get the materials to craft before, but now you just already have them and you can kind of make a better boat right away and and so on from there. So if you like survival games and you like roguelikes, this basically just sort of matches them together. It does have a mode that kind of removes most of the roguelike elements though. So but you have to have you do have to like survival games because that is definitely what it is. It is interesting that we've seen like I'm not sure how to word this, like Fallout decided we're gonna put survival elements and then Breath of the Wild included some, and then Obsidian decided we're going to make a game with some light survival elements. 
like I always thought of survival games as being like this really kind of rigid, walled off, it's kind of PC centric style of game, but it's kind of like leaking out, like its container is cracked and now it's just kind of like seeping into other games. I, I actually thought I actually started my preview with like there have been this this survival resurgence along with this sort of roguelike resurgence, especially in the indie scene. And this game is basically just what if you just mash them together? And that's that's what it is, pretty much. It's basically a roguelike survival with a Breath of the Wild aesthetic. That seems interesting enough. And what did you play it on? PC. It comes out for pretty much the PC, PS4, Xbox One, and Switch later this month. So kind of just all at once. I'm moderately interested. But there's a lot of stuff also coming out in late August, early September. And not on top of all the other like service games that I'm playing, but... It'll be interesting to see how well it does. And then the last preview we have is for the isometric cyberpunk style game, uh, Game Deck, which Danny did for us, which unfortunately the preview wasn't very strong on, uh, especially in terms of like the writing department. Just thought that it had uh, a lot of kind of iffy choices in terms of its style of writing and things like that. So, uh, but it is another preview up on the site. So that's a whole bunch of previews, reviews, and interviews that we've got. And then also I'll call out that we did do the um, about 40 minutes of gameplay footage from other side up on the YouTube channel that was put up last Wednesday or Thursday. And then as for news topics, uh, no, no real major like bombshells. Before I get into like a couple of the bigger topics, I, I kind of want to go through this sequence of kind of sales numbers first. Because we'll, we'll figure out uh, which ones we think are interesting to talk about and which ones are kind of expected. Uh, so we did see that Final Fantasy VII Remake has topped 5 million total sales, uh, both digitally and physically worldwide. And I guess that is more than what Final Fantasy XIII did in the same time span, but less than Final Fantasy XV. Uh, of course, Final it was... 15, Final Fantasy XV for whatever reason it seemed to like be very successful in breaking away from the usual audience that just plays i know final fantasy is already like it's not a niche series but it final fantasy 15 especially seemed to do a really good job at just bringing in an audience that normally doesn't play these sorts of games japanese rpgs and so it sold like five million in three days versus that's what i was saying like in a week or something like that yeah versus five million in four months and obviously, five million in four months is still really good, but it just like it just—it's just weird how Final Fantasy XV was just so successful in terms of how much it sold, kind of off the bat. Maybe just years and years and years. Well, I guess both games had years and years of build up in terms of hype. Uh, but so yeah, the, obviously, Final Fantasy XV is interesting. The one obviously that we have to bring up is COVID because remember when people weren't even sure if they were going to get their shipments on time from Amazon or wherever they pre-ordered, this was kind of at the, the onset of COVID era stuff. And then um, I do also wonder if the potential player base for a remake, even though once you've played it, how much of it is a remake, how much of it is a sequel is kind of up to interpretation um, where Final Fantasy 15 is, very clearly, like any other numbered Final Fantasy game, a fresh start. You don't have to have any previous history with the series. Final Fantasy VII Remake, it's like, well, am I, am I going to like this if I haven't played Final Fantasy? Obviously, most if I haven't played Final Fantasy VII, and obviously we've heard like from George's perspective, plenty of people who haven't played the original jumped into the remake. 
But you do wonder if there's like a, a non-negligible number of people that said, ah, I'm not interested in this remake of this game I've never played. We also got some uh, Nintendo-styled uh, sales data, including some RPGs that they've released in the last few months. So Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition has sold 1.32 million units in uh, since its release in late May. And I believe in the same time frame compared to Xenoblade Chronicles 2, it's more. Xenoblade Chronicles 2, I believe, sold 1.06, if I remember right, but is well, now over 2 million. Go ahead. Well, it's so like Xenoblade Chronicles 2, I believe it released in like early December. And by the end of that fiscal quarter, it sold like, yeah, just above a million. Whereas Xenoblade Chronicles 1 had like a, like a, a couple extra weeks in there because it released at the end of a month, at the beginning of a month. Um, but yeah, they're, they're similar starts in terms of sales, but Xenoblade Chronicles 2, or 1, excuse me, if it, by it, it, its rate is actually slightly higher. It sold right. more copies in less time. So yeah. We've got Pokemon Sword and Shield have combined sold an 18.2 million. And I know that's, I believe that's third behind Red, Blue, and Gold, Silver. Is that correct? Yep. Uh, Diamond and Pearl are around 17 million. Like 17, I forget exactly, like 17.6. And it, in the last quarter, surpassed that. The Sword and Shield surpassed Diamond and Pearl. So now it's the third best-selling Pokemon, Pokemon pair ever. Yeah, perhaps not super surprising, considering that there is not looking to be a third version, since they're doing DLC. I know that uh, Sarah B. Uh, Joe on like Reset Era mentioned that the uh, tail for these sales is um, trending much higher than usual for Pokemon games. So it's probably, well, it's definitely going to pass 20 million this holiday. It's just, I'm um, curious to see how much it actually ends up selling in the long run. Right, because will it, will it get a, um, a slight boost from the, uh, from the there big a fall DLC? Yeah. There's a very good chance that this ends up outselling gold and silver, which is kind of crazy. And for what it's worth, gold and silver is at 23 million. So that's still four or five million left to go, which is no, nothing to sneeze at. That's another Final Fantasy VII remix worth of sales to get through. But, you know, Nintendo games sometimes have those sort of legs that maybe it can happen. And then also, these are full priced console games instead of the, the generally cheaper handheld games just as a in terms of pure revenue 60 dollars per entry instead of 30 or 40 so despite kind of middling reviews including james's our own very own james Galizio's impressions of the game uh, they have done very well for the pokemon company and uh, as i mentioned in my impressions the uh, first dlc is very was very promising was a was definitely a step in the right direction so i'm very curious to see how the second dlc stacks up yeah, it's got the momentum. And then the last sales-related tidbit is that Greedfall, which was Spiders slash Focus Homes release late last September, has topped 1 million sales, which I think for a double-A uh, second-tier pu uh, publisher and developer, I think it's a, good, it's a success for them. It feels weird to have like a 1 million next to a 5 million and 18 million and still say, yeah, that's really good. But I think in terms of the scope of this game and where it was coming from, a 1 million seller for spiders is definitely a success here. Um, for what it's worth, 
I'm I'm pretty sure they have grown in recent years, but Spiders, I'm pretty sure, is still like main staff, less than a hundred people. It's it's a very small studio, so the the fact that they could make a, a game to sell a million is pretty, yeah, that's pretty good for them. And Greedfall we, had pretty good. Go ahead. Was it was Capcom's like earning releases this week too, or did we talk about that last week? Because I think Monster Hunter World is past sixteen million now. I think it was at sixteen million already, but I do think Capcom's fiscal release was like their best profit quarter ever. They just Capcom continues to roll. Yeah, this generation has been like the resurgence of Capcom. Yeah, give me Dragon's Dogma two, please. Yeah, you get the anime, and that's it. <laughs> well, we'll see. And then um, this is something I'm going to have to borrow Adam's expertise for, because this is, again, going back, circling back to Nice America and kind of second tier, not second tier is such a loaded term, kind of uh, non-franchise based new IPs. And this is for their a pair of dungeon RPG remasters that they've announced coming to Switch and PC in 2021. We've got Stranger of Sword City Revisited, which is a remaster of the 2016 release that we've reviewed, I think, both for Vita and PC. Technically, Alongside... I think this one, I think Revisited is actually a port slash remaster of the 2017 Vita re-release, uh-huh. which was the one and only uh, uh, game that Experience Inc.'s very, very short-lived uh, North American branch actually published. And then this is paired up with uh, Saviors of Sapphire Wings, which I'll honestly, I, is this a new release? I don't know much about this. So Adam, take it away. Well, first of all, James has played several of these games as well. So okay, the developer we're talking about voice. here, the developer we're talking about here is Experience Inc. They are a small, they actually started out as basically a Japanese indie studio, and they're pretty much still a very, a very, very small Japanese studio making these dungeon RPG games. So these are First-person dungeon crawlers in the vein. They're, they're wizardry, you know, inspired games, but they, they have their own flavor now, the experience games. So, like, first-person, step-by-step in a, in a first-person viewpoint grid-like dungeon crawler game. Uh, Stranger of Sword City was one of their titles that released in 2016 for Xbox One and PlayStation Vita and PC in the West. It got a re-release, like James said, on Vita called Revisited, which is pretty much the same game. It did some balance changes. It added a few classes, and it added the dungeon or whatever. But Experience has made many other dungeon crawler games, and last year they released Saviors of Sapphire Wings in Japan. We didn't know the title. When it released in Japan, the title translated to something like Blue Wing Chevalier instead, so maybe you've heard, heard of that title. Uh, in, instead of the Saviors of Sapphire Wings, which is the official English title. But that game is actually a remake of one of Experiencing's first games called Students of the Round, which is kind of... Um, I believe all the, a lot of these games are like set in the same universe, if you kind of like squint in a way. It's not really like that important, but they are. Yeah, I think they're like it's set, set in the same universe as Demon Gaze, only a thousand years earlier, Demon Gaze being another one of their titles. But yeah, Blue Wing Chevalier released on PlayStation Vita last year in Japan. 
but it also just came with Stranger of Sword City Revisited. Just it just came with it. Like no, it wasn't like a special you know bonus thing. It just it is the game Blue Wing Chevalier came with Stranger of Sword City Revisited on Vita in Japan. Basically, NIS America is taking that release. It's not coming to Vita in the West. It's instead coming to Switch and PC. I need a diagram. Both games together. <laughs> it, it's just a game that came with an older game, and now it's coming out in English, but on a different platform. And gotcha. Yeah. I'm betting the main reason, actually, they didn't bring it over for Vita, because there's like no real reason they couldn't have, is just because that original Vita Stranger of Sword City Revisited release was already kind of localized, technically, and there might have been some shenanigans with licensing that they would have had to deal with, but I don't know. So, Adam, what was your general impression of Stranger Sword City? Like, out of the, is it one of the better, better in the genre or middle of the road? I will say that there hasn't really yet been an experience game that I've, like, really have strongly attached to is, like, yes, this game is really very good, but Stranger of Sword City is the closest to that. It is a pretty good uh, dungeon crawler RPG. Uh, it has this very, uh, very brutal... Uh, what do you call it, like mechanic in place where if a character dies, getting them back up to speed can is uh, can be very, very tough and difficult to the point where when I was playing the game originally, I just decided to never let characters die because dealing with the penalty was just too harsh. So it was just, I'm kind of, I kind of just circumvented the game design because I felt like it was extremely rigid and harsh. And harsh. Yeah. Um, but I do think otherwise... Stranger of Sword City is their best game so far. It's really solid. It's got a really nice art style. It's um, it's more difficult than something like a Train Odyssey. Uh, I don't think it's like absolutely brutal, but it's 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 more difficult than than your average uh, dungeon caller, I think. But it's pretty good. I will say it has a really uh, interesting soundtrack that uses like a Vocaloid uh, for the vocals. I shut. I turned that off. <laughs> you can turn off the Vocaloid elements, and I did. That was a good soundtrack. <laughs> that's that's an accessibility I actually, option. I actually do. Think, <laughs> I actually do think the soundtrack is pretty good, but it actually gives literally an option in the menu, like, do you want the Vocaloid vocals in the music or not? And I turned them off. Um, but I do think the soundtrack without them is pretty good. Um, maybe maybe it just reminds so me too much of Demon Days when they're in there. So yeah, I'm interested in this game. Uh, maybe uh, maybe we can request quest two codes and do something kind of a, similar to uh, um, Story of Seasons. One person on Switch, one person on PC. I don't know. Because I'm interested. What's actually, what's actually kind of amusing is when Stranger of Sword City first released in the West, uh, it released on Xbox One and Vita pretty much simultaneously. And I actually, I do think the Vita version was localized by NIS America and the Xbox version was self-published by um, Experience in the West, but they kind of just released at the same time. Another staffer, Andrea, reviewed the Xbox One version while I reviewed the Vita version and neither of us knew the other one was reviewing it. So we ended up like both publishing a review around the same time, not knowing that the other one was playing the game. And our reviews ended up like eerily similar. 
<laughs> in terms of the things we pre- we praise and the things we we didn't like and we both for example mentioned how like the penalty for death in the game was extremely harsh and that we RPG both decided well oiled machine <laughs> we both decided we both made like the decision as we were playing the game basically to avoid it by resetting instead rather than dealing with the penalty it was just amusing how just like we have two very similar reading reviews basically that were created individually and separately uh, for what it's worth, when I played through uh, the original uh, Stranger of Sword City, I also safe scummed. So, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, just, it's just not worth dealing with that penalty, um, especially. So one thing I like about dungeon crawlers, like one reason why I kind of are, am drawn to them is that one thing about party based RPGs that I really like is party coordination, making sure like your units complement each other and in the best way is having you know, your mage units buffing your other units or having your 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 defense unit guarding your other units. Uh, you, have a, you have your DPS unit. You have to make sure you your health can be maintained, that your buffs are your buffs are crucial, that your buffs are, are maintained, but you're able to do enough damage and also able to, to take enough damage before you die. So I think DRPGs generally just have a really good sense of party coordination. But with this penalty that Sword, Stranger of Sword City has in play, if you have a character that is knocked out, they have to basically sit out for a while. And that just totally ruins like your flow. Like, oh, now I got to put in a substitute character and now the whole thing falls apart. Um, not to mention that eventually that character can actually die permanently if this happens enough times. So just if a character died like in a boss fight, well, got to reset and do that boss fight over. I will say one good thing about Stranger Sword City is that because of the way the class change system worked, is that if you were having enough issues, you could fairly easily just grind things out by like uh grinding out skills class changing because to a certain degree like stats from each class that you um, shift from do stack so like if you do run into a wall you can eventually overcome it like i know that they're like among the people that i know that have played the game there's a specific boss near the end which is like this kind of summoner dude that summons like all of these like wisp things. It was like a really tough wall for a bunch of people. I'm not sure if you remember if you remember the one I'm talking about. It was like the end of the dungeon right before the final dungeon. I don't remember the boss, but I think I remember the dungeon. Yeah. It it was very much uh, difficult. Uh, one thing I I haven't played revisited, even though I own it. But one thing I do know that revisited changes is the way that you grind out new equipment which was very RNG dependent, very grindy in the original. Like the way it worked is that you have, there were specific spots in each dungeon that you kind of had to wait in and you would see like enemies come by with a chest that would have an icon for like the type of equipment it had. And if you were trying to go for specific equipment to really help uh, boost your party's strength, there was a lot of waiting around. And there was, I think if I remember correctly, if you waited too long, you would be ambushed. So it was, it was a bit of a pain in the ass to get new equipment. I do understand. Yeah, I, I remember this. It was actually very similar to Demon Gaze and some of the other experience games. Yeah. Apparently, Revisited does change that to a degree, though I don't remember what the exact like changes entail. I just know that they rebalanced that to be a bit less grindy. So I'm interested to see how it's uh, changed up. I will it's be perfectly Yeah. I'll be perfectly honest, I'm definitely more excited for this for Stranger of Sword City Revisited than uh, Saviors of Sapphire Wings, because... Stranger of Sword City has a much better art style. Yeah. Um, That actually reminds me, um, 
So Stranger of Sword City's art style, it's like Japanese, and I would even say it, it is anime, but it's not like colorful, bubbly anime, especially you see in today's like anime seasons where there's a lot of bright colors and things like that. No, Stranger of Sword City has a lot of like muted colors, like muted, I call muted it blacks, blues, and purples. Um, but I remember, like, I think it was maybe with the revisited stuff, they added like a, they added like a toggle where you could change the character art from what it is. And it, the character art is actually kind of Western in a way, but they, they, they added a toggle where you could change it from that to like these really more generic anime blobs. Actually, the way that worked was that the original Xbox 360 version in Japan was only the one art style. Then when they ported it to Xbox One and Vita, they added the alternate art style, but then Revisited got rid of the alternate art style, so you only have the uh, original art to choose from. Good. <laughs> yeah. But, the, but uh, the, the Saber Sapphire Wings has more of this bubbly anime art style. Um, I mean, I'm still interested in it as a dungeon crawler, but it's not definitely not as visually striking. Yeah, the reason why I say I'm only really interested in Revisited is that going off of the Amazon Japan like reviews for uh, Savior of Sapphire Wings, that one was like two and a half stars, whereas Stranger of Sword City Revisited is like four stars, which I know that doesn't usually mean much, but as far as Amazon Japan goes, for more hardcore games like that, it's generally a good idea to get like gauge like um, what the overall impressions and like whatnot for a game is. So uh, very clearly. Uh, Stranger of Sword City Revisited is the better loved game. And I mean, both me and you have played it. I mean, at least the older version, and we know it's pretty good. So <laughs> revisiting that, literally revisiting the revisited version, we know it's probably also pretty good. Yep. So that is TBA 2021 for those for PC via Steam and GOG and Switch. I guess I should mention that this is like a dual pack game and it's literally called like the actual title of this game at retail seems to be Savior of Sapphire Wing slash Stranger of Sword City Revisited. Like that's that's the game title. It's a dual pack. Reminds me of the uh, Digimon's uh, story Cyber Sleuth uh, 2 in 1 pack on Switch. Oh yeah. <laughs> that's the uh, um, cover art though I do feel like the way they did it for this uh, dual pack looks a lot better than Digimon's. <laughs> We also had the state of play on Sony's side this week, and it didn't have a ton of RPG news, but it had a couple things. Like one is Temtem, which is currently in Steam early access on PC, will also be coming to PlayStation 5, and then later we saw Xbox Series X and Switch in 2021, which is also when it expects to see its quote-unquote 1.0 release. So this is the online... What if Pokemon had a massive, massive multiplayer component to it? So I, I, I'm in a PC Discord that had a couple people play this when it first came out, but it kind of ran. They kind of ran into that typical early access stuff where there wasn't a lot to do after like five hours. But the, I think their impressions were really good. Like it, it, it does enough to be like, yeah, this is our take on Pokemon, without feeling like it's just playing, you know, Parakeet. So. I don't know. It's it's kind of a something that I'm interested in. I probably would never play it, but I do I do wonder if people will ever like stop saying, "Oh, this is just the Pokemon ripoff." Um, I don't know. I just feel like, come on, go go into it with an open mind. Just 
Have you have any of you guys played much of Temtem? Because I've seen that impression have been pretty good on it, but I haven't played it myself. Usually early access stuff. I just I just wait. <laughs> I'm not really in a hurry to play these games like when they're not yet content complete. And to be honest, I'm not really interested in the Pokemon genre anyway. But I guess it is interesting that this is just coming to next gen consoles. So but yeah, that's coming to all the consoles in early 2021. Alongside, it'll have its full full PC release as well. So we'll keep an eye on that because we did see, but obviously, Sword and Shield sold gangbusters, but that obviously has the Pokemon name attached to it. So it'll be interesting to see how well this one does in its shadow. We also got some news about Godfall from the PlayStation event, but I don't know if there's really anything really worth bringing up here in terms of what they showed. They really just showed more gameplay, and I will I will give them this. They have showed a fair bit of Godfall gameplay over the last couple of events, so we have a pretty good idea of what it looks like and how it plays, I'm at least pretty, visually. So. I'm pretty sure Godfall is like the one next-gen game that we've seen the most gameplay of. Right. <laughs> so it, it looks like it's... It, this is actually kind of funny. Um... They have someone. This was can it, this. Someone tweeted this. I forget who. I think it was Imran from. Well, I guess he was former Game Informer. But like they had a uh, an FAQ on their website, and the website has this thing like, "Is this like Dark Souls?" And they're like, "No, it's actually you know more you know rapid and whatnot." It's like, "Is it like Diablo?" And it's like, "No, it's the camera perspective <laughs> is different." But that gives you a pretty good idea of what the game is like. It's a mix between. Dark Souls and Diablo, you know, action RPG, stamina-based, tell-based, but with a looting element like Diablo. Uh, so that's probably a pretty good indicator of what type of game it is. So, yeah. Also on the Sony front, we got some details about uh, the Avengers game, which I was, I'd be curious to hear George's uh, input here if he was around. Uh, he's at work today if you're wondering where he's at. Um, so we learned that Spider-Man will be a PlayStation exclusive for this game, which then kind of blew up on social media and Twitter and forums and all that about how this is kind of a big thing to have exclusive to a console for a, uh, character based looter. So yeah, this, this actually, this actually breached like mainstream news slightly. Oh, wow. That's how big it was. Because Spider-Man is, as far as I know, one of, if not the most popular Marvel superhero. So having him locked to a specific platform for the big Marvel's game, the, that, the big Marvel game, is huge. And I think everyone's already said it. This is anti-consumer as hell. Like, there's no way that they were not going to add Spider-Man until Sony like gave them money to make it exclusive. Again, he's one of, if not the most popular Marvel superhero. He was going to be added to the game eventually. It's complete and utter BS. I was actually kind of interested in maybe playing this down the line on PC, but with this, it's just like, I don't even want to bother. I'm and not by the way, I just want to say that as far as we know, Sony does not own Spider-Man. They own the film rights to Spider-Man, and evidence to that is the fact that we just had a Switch exclusive with um, Marvel Alliance 3 with Spider-Man in it, and then alongside the Lego Marvel games that include Spider-Man. 
So what's, what's actually kind of amusing is that the Switch, Marvel, Marvel Ultimate Alliance 3, Spider-Man, is voiced by the same voice actor who did, like, the Insomniac game. So it, I don't know if he's exactly, but he's very similar to the Insomniac Spider-Man. Whereas the Spider-Man that's in Avengers is very clearly supposed to be, like, a different incarnation of Spider-Man. Like, I don't know the details, but he's, it's not, like, the same universe Spider-Man. So I just find that even more kind of amusing in a way in that it's it's not like the Insomniac PlayStation-exclusive Spider-Man. That's the PlayStation-exclusive edition to Avengers. It's a different incarnation of Spider-Man, but still exclusive. Uh, one thing weird. I to say is that I don't know specifically, nobody really knows specifically, but we do. one thing we do know is that Sony film and games departments have been working more closely lately. And there was that whole kerfuffle with Disney over, like, uh, Spider-Man in the MCU, and they eventually hand over something. That was, like, what, a year ago? I don't think it's impossible that something happened where Sony brokered a deal where any Marvel games going forward would have Spider-Man exclusive to PlayStation or something like that. Because I like that is Marvel, a possibility. obviously was in development for a decent amount of time. So like if it was already like the deal was already signed, it could have just been grandfathered in. And you have those weird comments from like the Crystal Dynamics guys saying that, oh, like Sony owns like Spider-Man on on like in video games. Well, at first it, you'd think, oh, that can't be, but considering the weird relationship between Sony and the Spider-Man brand already and that whole like shakeup that we don't know about what happened and like internally, I think it might be possible that they reached a deal where Faye gets to stay in the MCU. They keep getting to uh, use that character for the overall film branding for Disney and Sony gets access to Spider-Man for video games. I don't think it's possible. Now, the thing is, is whether or not Sony actually exclusively owns the rights or they only just have the perception of it. I think the fact that they, they obviously the end goal is, is that they want people to associate Spider-Man with Sony. So, yeah, I'm not offend Sony here at all. I'm just saying that this legitimately might be a Sony decision that where Nix and Crystal Dynamics had no say in. So even if this is just a quote-unquote money hat and Sony does not actually own exclusive rights, like the fact that people will say like, well, of course Spider-Man's exclusive because it's a Sony game. Like the fact that people have already drawn that tether, like that, I think that's the goal is they want people to have that association in mind. And so they've succeeded. So I guess this is a, a success of marketing where it's just obviously they had that big uh, reveal just recently for... Uh, Miles Morales as a PS5 exclusive. So this just feels like maybe for in a lot of people's minds, the next logical thing. So I guess in a lot of ways, it's kind of self-shielding. It's like, oh, it's, it's a Sony game. The Sony version of the game has Spider-Man. So of course it does. Um, I guess I've never really been super interested in this game. And I, I kind of cynically look at this kerfuffle and be like, this is the most discussion the game has gotten like in any of the spheres that I'm have a viewpoint too and i think like it's kind of that any any news is good news or any coverage is good coverage like it's 
this is the most the Avengers game has been in the spotlight. Like, remember a week ago or two weeks ago, we were talking about like Hawkeye and just like glanced over it as like, oh, he's a he's a character in the game. And now we have like this big meaty like stake to chew on in terms of this exclusivity stuff that's just going to be carried forward from this point forward. Yeah. Again, like be- I was kind of getting interested in it after seeing some of the most recent gameplay, but um, obviously our, uh, I haven't played it. And uh, from what I understand from, uh, I think Alex was actually the one that wrote the uh, preview for VG 24-7, was he? Or was it someone right, else? So, so two things here. One, George has played the beta as far as I know. So maybe next week we'll hear his impressions. And then the RPG site founder or co-founder, Alex Donaldson, did write a preview for VG247. So kind of indirectly. Yeah, like I think the way he described it is the uh, beta reminds him of Anthem, which is not a very good, uh, (laughs) not a glowing amount. That's very loaded language. Yeah. Um, I do hope the game is good, but I'm not going to be playing it now. That's all I can say. It's just very disappointing this happened like i i hope that square Enix and crystal dynamics didn't have a say in this i i'd like to hope that they didn't have a say in this but either way it doesn't change the fact that i'm not going to be playing it now even though i was considering maybe giving a shot down the line like i really don't have a like to stand on in terms of like an ethical decision or whatever because i do remember that i specifically bought or I forget if I had to wait for it, but I specifically got the PS3 version of Batman Arkham Asylum so I could get the Play as the Joker missions. Like, it worked on me then, so I'm not going to say I'm above it now. Like, that would just be hypocritical. Uh, I don't think I'll ever play this game, but if I were to, or if I had a friend that was interested in it, I would tell them, make sure you get the PlayStation version. It's just just how it is. Like, (laughs) you're not going to have access to Spider-Man if you don't. I I guess like a closing remark for me is that this reminds me of the uh, BS that happened with PlayStation exclusive content in Destiny 2 for the longest time, even Destiny 1 to an extent, where I think with Destiny 1 specifically, there was supposed to be a year of exclusivity for specific like content in the game and then something happened and they changed it to two years of exclusivity for PlayStation. And I do know in the Destiny fandom that that was very unpopular in both the, ba- the original game and Destiny 2. And it sounds like, because it's not just Spider-Man that's exclusive to the Avengers. Like, a few days later, maybe a day later, uh, Sony came out saying that there was going to be exclusive skins, exclusive missions, and, like, month early access to content. So, like, from what I'm hearing, it sounds like that this is even worse, like, uh, money hatting or whatever you call it. Avengers then was already super unpopular for Destiny when that was a thing. Something that Bungie has con- like come out and said they're never going to have platform exclusive content ever again because of how it negatively impacted their player base. So definitely going to be interesting to see how this evolves. That maybe, hopefully it'll be just timed for, for uh, Spider-Man, but something tells me it won't. And uh, yeah, it'll definitely be interesting to see how this impacts the player base going forward. If there's going to be a, an even larger skew towards PlayStation uh, sales versus For- like uh, Xbox and PC. And I guess Stadia, though, uh, I do have to wonder if Stadia will still be around once this game's out. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I, I, one of the sentiments that, I, that I've seen pretty commonly is that obviously 
in terms of console sales, PlayStation is has sold more than Xbox. And a lot of people have been like, well, I was planning on getting a split in PlayStation anyways, no big deal. Um, I don't know. I feel like it's a little bit short-sighted, but I guess that's not here or there. Like, if if I was planning on playing this game on PC and they told me, I don't know, um, some... I don't know my I don't know my Marvel characters very well, but if they told me like a big major character was exclusive to PC, I would I I'd like to think that I would feel weird about it, even if that was a pl- version I was planning to get anyway. But like I said, I did get the PS3 version of Arkham Asylum, so it's you know it's hard it's hard to imagine exactly what I would do in the hypothetical. But uh, we'll get we'll get George's impressions, uh, and we'll see down the line if this really has any lasting impact or if it's just something that's forgotten about and. Uh, when it releases in a few months. I do wonder though that like we have we kind of have these two parallel roads where obviously as we go into a new console generation, I'm I'm expecting and there's been teases from certain people that we're going to be seeing more and more of this whether it's exclusive content or fully exclusive third-party games. Uh the big rumor right now, which we don't have any sources on, uh is that Final Fantasy 16 could be a, a exclusive, which really isn't that out on a limb considering Final Fantasy VII Remake also has that timed exclusivity. Uh, but we also have this push for more cross-play and things like that. So you wonder, like, how many more intersections are we going to have where we have this multiplayer cross-play game where a certain fraction of the player base has access to someone, say, like a character, Spider-Man, and playing alongside other people who can't even access that if they wanted to? I don't know. It's kind of interesting to think about. Just gross in general. The last major bit of news uh, is something that I think was kind of out of left field is that Final Fantasy XI, not fourteen, is getting a story content update, which it's been supported ever since its release in terms of having a live team, in terms of constantly updating the game. But in terms of story content... This is the first update in five years since 2015. So this is the voracious resurgence, which is coming to Final Fantasy XI on, it looks like it's a a series of content updates starting on the 6th. So it looks like it's already started to roll out. Yeah. Just absolutely crazy that there's people that were born when Final Fantasy XI came out and now they're like 18. 2002, yep. The game's still getting supported. That's really cool. Gives me a lot of hope that uh, Final Fantasy XIV is going to have a similar cadence of content. Uh, something like that. But, uh, I mean, none of us here have played Eleven, so I guess we can't really talk about it. Well, I, have I-, two, I have two general ideas I want to talk about. Is First of all, when I see this, on my personal biases, what this makes me really disappointed in is that I see how Square Enix can keep Final Fantasy XI alive, well, obviously their live focus, their strong focus is on Final Fantasy XIV, but they're, they're able to run the two games in parallel. And I look at Guild Wars 2 and how in order for them to make their sequel, Guild Wars 1 was effectively abandoned, when I don't think it needed to be, because it's a very well, different game. Go ahead. Here's a question, though, because Guild Wars 1, was it subscription-based or was it not subscription-based? It was not subscription-based, so that's a good point. Here's the thing with Final Fantasy XI, as I understand it, is that the main reason it's continued to get supported is as Final Fantasy XIV has continued to blow up and become more and more successful, 
the subscriptions for Final Fantasy XI have actually increased, probably because of people that have uh, decided to go backwards and see what they missed. And I think I've actually kind of mentioned that in passing on a previous podcast, but I guess that would make sense. If, if, and, and I've and I've mentioned if this game ever did get if its mobile version or whatever its revamp ever resurfaces, I I I'm interested in dipping my toes into it. Man, you're going to try Final Fantasy XI before Final Fantasy XIV, even though that really nice and generous uh, free trial upgrade for Final Fantasy XIV launches on Tuesday. You're not going to guilt me into this. I've got uh, I don't have an excuse, so I don't like I don't like being back into this corner. Uh, but the second thing I was going to say was it does make me wonder. Like, there's other older uh, MMOs, maybe not from as far back as twenty as two thousand two, but games like RuneScape, especially. Uh, what's what's the what's the acronym for the old OSRS old school RuneScape? That's it. Like that has a good player base and is doing well on PC, as far as I know. Um, like Lord of the Rings Online is still chugging along. It does make me wonder. Like, what is the minimum viable like active community that you need for these things to just kind of like do what they're doing just kind of just keep rolling along and just doing their thing and like like not everything has to be this million subscribers active at any one time like world of warcraft or final fantasy 14 it does kind of make me wonder like how far back can you pare it down where it's like yeah we've got this online experience that i don't know a hundred thousand people play something like that yeah because it's it's kind of cool to think that if I wanted to, I could load up Lord of the Rings Online and play that for the first time the same way someone first played it when it launched in, I don't know, 2005, whenever it came out, or or, or games like Old School RuneScape and things like that. So, Or, I guess, to bring this back around, the first opening of Final Fantasy XI, I could play it as as, as the uh, 10-year-old me could have in, 20, in 2002 or whenever it came out. Very interesting stuff. Um, I just want to. I just want to mention, kind of, again, amusedly, when I saw this update. Like, first of all, it was like teased on on a Final Fantasy XI forum that was not very active, and it was like the first like active news post in there in years. There's just kind of this random post from the from the game's producer it, on like this Final Fantasy XI forum, this old internet forum, just like an official post, brand new. Kind of like a fish out of water in this on this forum, and then like the the actual like news update on the when like the, on the story content itself, on like this, on like this mid two thousand era website where it doesn't really play very well in four you know, on a four K monitor and things like that. I just thought that was amusing how it was just like brand new update and content for the Square Enix game, but like the forums and news blog that it was posted to were like from you know. 20 years ago or whatever. The, 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 the infrastructure that the update was announced on was a relative yes. time. I'm going to uh, posit a question. Do you guys think that this might be like a bit of a uh, renaissance for MMO games? Because like, I remember back in the early like um, 2010s, like there was like obviously so many MMOs trying to release to like kind of ape World of Warcraft for the crown. But it feels like in recent years that there's like a surprising like variety of MMOs that are all doing well and and are all like relatively active and successful. Like obviously, mm-hmm. Guild Wars Two is still going around. Like ESO is doing well for itself. I just found out the other day that like Star Wars: The Old Republic, that old MMO, like that one Bioware MMO that 
people like didn't really like at launch. Apparently it's good now and it has an active player base and it just came out on Steam and stuff like that. And then of yeah, course like, like Black Desert Online and you have stuff like it just it it, it it occurs to me that if you wanted to get into an MMO like right now, there's a surprising like variety of different types of MMOs that are still being actively supported that you can choose from. And I think that's just really neat. And I think Elder Scrolls Online, it kind of had a rocky start, but it sounds like from people I know who play it, it's really improved. Um, they just released like uh, an update for it a couple months ago, Graymore, and they also just announced it's coming to next gen consoles. So it's like, and that all, all all character player progress, if you play on a console, will be transferred. Apparently, and so, I World of Warcraft, though, maybe one day I might. But apparently Shadowlands, the latest expansion, is going to shake things up quite a bit because it's going to require an SSD to play. So it's going to be interesting to see like how that changed up. Once the... I don't think I've ever heard that, like a game actually requiring an SSD. Oh, uh, it's going to happen. Like, I know that the media one like kind of horror game that's coming to a PC and Series X is going to require an SSD as well. So Wait, which one is this? The medium. Oh, that one. Okay. I mean, it makes sense with next-gen consoles having like NVMe SSDs. It's only a matter of time for a PC to require SSDs as well. So, yeah, just some interesting stuff. And I just, while we were talking about like uh, stuff like uh, Final Fantasy XI, just occurred to me. It's like, man, this is a really good time if you want to get into MMOs because there's just so many stuff out there. And like. We didn't really talk about it this week, but obviously last week we mentioned that up and coming the uh, episode four for PSO2 just launched like a few days ago. So, I mean, PSO2's out in the West now. Like last I checked, it's doing pretty good numbers on Steam. Like, let, like, let me check Community Hub. Like right now there's almost 20,000 people in game on Steam alone, not counting Windows Store, not counting Xbox, which is pretty good for a really late release of an older MMO. And it kind of goes back to that topic about like how many, some people will say like, well, that's well less than Final Fantasy XIV. So obviously they're not successful. Well, but that's, that's players like in game right now. That's not counting like, like monthly active users, which I'm sure if there's like almost 20,000 people in game on Steam, like it's probably like add an Xbox one and Windows store. It's at least 30 K something like that. And then, Monthly active users is definitely in the hundreds of thousands, which is something. And then obviously we have new Genesis coming late. uh, Sorry, next year. Yeah. Yeah, it's I think we're kind of at a place where online infrastructure has gotten better over the last 10 years. Social media and like things like Discord have kind of and like cross play technology and and, uh, incentive has gone up so that we can have like Obviously, Final Fantasy fourteen kind of, I don't, I don't want to say pioneered that, but they kind of spearheaded that in terms of their PS3, then PS4, and PC crossplay and things like that. DC Universe Online at first started that because it was on PS3. Yeah, I, I, I didn't want to say Final Fantasy fourteen like was the first, but they were like the big one that did it. That's kind of what I was getting at. But yeah, I just think like it's a good, it's a good environment to release the first of all mmos are still like these giant complicated big huge investments that can go terribly wrong and i can understand why people avoid them developers i mean but it seems like they're 
I think we're in a place where I, I wouldn't be surprised to start seeing more and more games start leaning back that direction after yeah. a kind of a lull. And that kind of covers it for the things that I had listed to talk about this week. I don't know if you two had anything else that wasn't explicitly laid out here or uh, things just, you're looking forward to for next week. Uh, just a little bit of a throwaway like comment, but uh, uh, Capcom posted on the Monster Hunter Twitter just like yesterday that they're going to be bringing back some of the old festivals, which are like events in game that kind of have like a theme to it. And special armors that you can craft and stuff like that. And they bring like all the event quests into rotation during them. They're like starting on the 18th. I think they're basically for like every two weeks, they're going to swap out like uh, festivals. So for a good solid month and a half, if you missed any festivals or if you wanted to really get back into monster hunter, that might be a good opportunity because you'll have access to all of the event quests and whatnot. Yeah, it's basically the in celebration of a one year anniversary of Iceborne. So, yeah, cool. And I'm I'm eager to see where Monster Hunter goes from here. Whether it's just continuing year two of Iceborne updates or whatever, whenever we see what they have planned for their teased like Switch release. Yeah. Well, cool. Uh, that covers it for news of the week and we will probably have something up on the youtube channel this week for another casual mode that i think the actual game is still to be decided but we'll come up with something uh we have all of those previews interviews and reviews that i rattled off earlier up on the website at rpgsite.net you can join our discord channel through the link at the top of our homepage. you can go see any of those videos i talked about on our youtube channel at rpgsite.net uh, you can join us, you can follow us, I mean, on Facebook or Twitter at RPG Site Net or at RPG Site. And we will be back next week with another episode of the TetraCast. Maybe we'll get uh, George on to talk about uh, Avengers, and I'm guessing he'll have something to say about Crash 4, just knowing him. I'll definitely have uh, stuff to talk about uh, regarding Final Fantasy XIV's patch. That's going to be fun. And maybe I'll play through uh, episode 4 of Fantasy Star and come up with uh my impressions of that but until next time take care we'll see you then